Turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. While you're finding Ezra 7, I want to tell you about another guy whose name starts with E, and that is Enoch. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam, and he is most famous for doing, or rather not doing, one thing, and that is that he didn't die. He didn't die. Genesis 5, 21 and following says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And the New Testament confirms that Enoch was taken up by God, much as the prophet Elijah So that's the most famous fact that we know about Enoch. There's a lesser known fact about Enoch, though. And that was that he was a preacher. He was a preacher of the revelation of God. And not only was he a preacher, he was the very first preacher that we know of to teach not the first coming of Messiah, but the second coming. We have a record of this preaching in Jude 14 and 15. Jude says it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He was a faithful preacher. He was a shepherd. He taught those who were true worshipers of God, and he taught to warn those who were not true worshipers of God. And ever since then, going all the way back to Enoch, God has provided shepherds for his people. Men of God to proclaim the revelation of God for their good and for his glory. Because it's only through the words of God, given through men of God, that God's people can know God and we can know his requirements of us. I was tempted to take the time to trace the history of the shepherds that God has sent, but that would take all evening. But just suffice it to say, God has sent shepherds faithfully, not just to Israel, but even to Gentiles. Uh, Shepherds such as Jonah and Obadiah, who warned Gentiles of the judgment of God. And of course, to Israel, beginning with Moses and carrying down to the prophets with the final prophet under the old covenant, John the Baptist, preaching that the Messiah who would save his people from their sins had now come. Jesus himself, of course, is the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. So God has always provided shepherds. After the death and resurrection of Christ, it was Christ's ascension into heaven, which would precipitate the continuing of God, making certain his people had shepherds. Ephesians 4, 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, And he gave gifts to men. And what were those gifts? Three verses later, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Well, we come back now to the days of the returned exiles from Babylon under the new Persian Empire. And at a very strategic moment, God again graciously provides a shepherd. Somebody that proclaimed the word of God, a a stunning example of a man of God, Now, where we were in Ezra 6 last time, the finishing of the temple and the celebration of that finishing, now when we start Ezra 7, we fast forward almost 60 years. 
We're, we're a couple of generations away now. The temple was completed in 515 B.C., and we come now to around 458, 457 B.C., and so some decades have passed. And we're now introduced to the most significant human character in all of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is Ezra himself. Ezra's genealogy is traced in more detail than anyone, including his priority to the Holy Spirit in giving us Ezra Nehemiah. His genealogy goes back 16 generations. It goes back 1,000 years, all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. So we're going to see that Ezra has quite a heritage. We're also going to see, as we go down further in Ezra Nehemiah, that Ezra still plays a continuing significant role, all the way as far as Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 12. Ancient Jewish rabbis considered Ezra the most important figure for post-exile Israel. He was the guy. He was to exiled Israel and post-exile Israel what Moses was to the first generation of Jews. And Ezra will stand for us this evening as one of the great examples of a faithful shepherd in Scripture. And that's our topic tonight as we continue examining the tremendous faithfulness of God. If you recall, each of our messages in Ezra and Nehemiah gives us one proof or evidence of God's faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And tonight, that proof is that God supplies set-apart shepherds. I know that no pastor, no elder is indispensable. We like to think we are sometimes, and we kind of hope we'll be missed for a week or two. But the fact is, is that God has been supplying shepherds to his people for millennia now, and he will continue to do so. And so any shepherd's duty is that when it's his turn up to bat, so to speak, we work hard and we swing for the fences. And then the next guy's turn and the next guy's. Different shepherds in the history of the church have played differing roles. And they have different roles and different emphases that God gives them. You might recall that when Paul was trying to discourage the, the allegiances to different shepherds in the Corinthian church, he criticized them for proclaiming that they follow the man. And he said to them in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And, and here's the differing missions. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Some shepherds have or had a ministry like Isaiah. Isaiah faithfully preached and prophesied for six decades, but with little visible result, and his ministry ended not with being honored by his church, so to speak, not with a, a send-off. One pastor I knew was, was given a BMW. That's not a hint. That's just what happened. Uh, he wasn't honored with, with a, a wonderful new home or anything like that. Isaiah's ministry ended by being sawn in half by the king he served. So some have a ministry like Isaiah, faithful and yet seeing very little visible fruit at the time. Others have a ministry like Jonah, sometimes known as the whiny prophet, who basically preached one sermon after running from the ministry and griping and complaining to the Lord. And after that one sermon, he saw what at the time was the greatest city on earth repent wholesale. I imagine Isaiah looking at that going, really, that's, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> God has provided faithful shepherds, differing results, different 
situations, and tonight we get a very rare chance to slow our pace a bit in Ezra Nehemiah and examine God's supply of set-apart shepherds. That's why he's faithful. That's one reason he's faithful. God's supply of set-apart shepherds. We've said this before, and I I really believe this to be true, and I've seen this in our own ministry here, that a church body that understands shepherds understands the church. And those two go hand in hand. And so getting an insider's look into the role of the shepherd, this was God's intention here in Ezra 7. And he took enough time for us that all of us need to know this information. So what I want to do very simply tonight is show you three major building blocks of the shepherds whom God supplies. Three major building blocks of the shepherds whom God supplies. And some of these will have some further divisions because we're kind of starting at the bird's eye view of the shepherd here. The first major building block we'll call a providential background. A providential background. A life uniquely crafted by God to prepare the shepherd for his duty among God's people. And we get five verses on Ezra's providential background. Look with me at Ezra 7 verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zahariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest." Ezra was a priest. His lineage is traced all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest and brother of Moses himself. So Ezra was actually the great, 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 great nephew of the greatest man that God ever provided in Israel's history, Moses himself, the one who gave them the law. Now, why is this genealogy here? I've had the privilege of preaching and teaching in a variety of backgrounds and No one has ever introduced me as Steve Swartz, son of Burton Swartz, son of Daniel Swartz, son of Warren Swartz, son of Daniel Swartz, son of Warren Swartz. My family wasn't very creative with names. They just kept going back and forth. Their motto was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so they just kept going. But no one would introduce me that way because no one would care. They wouldn't care. But Ezra's genealogy has a purpose. It emphasizes the importance of his role. Why was Ezra so key to the Jews 58 years or so after the building of the temple? What's the connection to the temple? I'll get to the genealogy here in a moment, but the genealogy is there to demonstrate that Ezra was God's key man. And why is he so important? Well, I want to take a brief detour and show you why he was so important. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, go forward a few books there. And what we're going to see is a loving warning from God to the southern kingdom of Judah before the exile through the man of God, Jeremiah. And the key element of this warning is the temple, Solomon's temple, because the people were trusting in the temple that as long as the temple is there, as long as the the edifices are there, as long as the externals are there, as long as the courtyard is there, then God must be with us as long as they're there. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. 
and do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. In other words, he says, if you trust in the temple, then I'm going to destroy the temple. Why did God destroy the temple the first time back in 586 B.C.? Because they were hypocritical in the house of the Lord. Did you catch that in verses 9 and 10? This is, this is horrible. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? That is just rank hypocrisy. That their so-called worship has no connection whatsoever to their lives. The first temple was destroyed because of the people's disobedience to the law of God. There's a reference to this law in verse 5, truly executing justice. Verse 6, oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, shedding innocent blood. Those are references to the law. And so the first temple was destroyed because they continually broke covenant. They broke the law. And so if the second temple now was to continue on, if Israel was going to be saved this time, then Israel needed to be taught to obey once again. And so Ezra now comes on the scene almost 60 years after the second temple was completed. That's about the time that it takes for God's people to jump the tracks, doesn't it? And now he's here, and he alone will stand in the gap to keep them in line by teaching them the law of God. Now, that brings us back to Ezra's genealogy. You can turn back to Ezra 7, if you like. First Chronicles 6 also gives the genealogy of Ezra, but there are a few names missing in the Ezra 7 genealogy. And a couple notes about that. Uh, first of all, using selective genealogy was common practice, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture. There's no rule that says you had to include everybody. That's not a rule. But more importantly, what it shows here is that since this is the smaller of the genealogies, this is selective, that these are noted in Ezra because they're important. So this is somewhat of an all-star lineup of Ezra's family, showing the importance of his lineage. 
you have Ezra, the son of Sariah. Sariah was actually Ezra's great-grandfather. And he was significant because we know from 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 that Sariah was the high priest in Jerusalem at the time of Jerusalem's destruction in 586 BC. And Sariah was executed by Nebuchadnezzar's captain of the guard. First Chronicles 6 tells us that Sariah's son, Jehozadak, was taken into exile in Babylon and was most likely the father of Jeshua, the high priest of the exile, when they returned in 537. So already we see that Ezra has a connection at a significant family level to the high priestly family. Sariah's father was Azariah. His name means the Lord has helped. And this turns out to be a popular family name since there are two Azariahs in the lineage. And in fact, Ezra is carrying out that name as a shortened version of Azariah, kind of like the Warrens and Daniels in my family that happened a thousand times. It goes back and forth. And so Ezra keeps that family connection. First Chronicles 6.10 tells us that this Azariah served as high priest in Solomon's temple. It's a big deal. Azariah's father was Hilkiah the priest. Hilkiah is important. He was the high priest under the good king Josiah. Hilkiah was the one who found the book of the law during the repairs on the temple recorded in 2 Kings 22. By this time, Israel had so strayed from God that they couldn't even find a copy of the law. They had to knock down the wall and have this discovered. And you recall that Hilkiah gave the law to King Josiah. King Josiah read the law and he realized just how far God's people had strayed and he led what would be the final great spiritual revival of Israel in 622 BC, just a few decades before exile. Hilkiah's father was Shalom. We don't know much about Shalom except that he was a priest and it's at least possible that Shalom was named after Solomon. It's the same Hebrew root word. Why would it be possible that Shalom was named after Solomon? Because Shalom's father was Zadok. And Zadok was high priest during Solomon's reign and during the construction of the first temple. In other words, Ezra can lay claim to saying, my great, 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 great grandfather was there during the, the, the construction of the first temple. My great, great grandfather was there during the destruction of the first temple. He has a serious family connection to all of this. Zadok's father, father was Ahutub. First Chronicles 9.11 calls Ahutub the chief officer of the house of God. He may have been the high priest, but that was a rare title for high priest. In either case, he ran the day-to-day -day operations of the temple. Big deal. Ahutub's father was Amariah. Second Chronicles 19.11 lists Amariah as the high priest during the reign of Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat is recorded in 1 Kings 22 as having walked in the Lord's ways and done what was right in God's sight. Jehoshaphat's important enough, I preached a whole sermon on him a couple of years ago. So Amariah was high priest with a faithful king. Amariah's father was another Azariah. We don't know much about this Azariah except that he was deemed important to include in the genealogy of Ezra. And for Marioth, Zechariah, Uzi, Buki, Abishua, there's very little information except that they make the connection all the way back to Abishua's father, Phineas. Phineas was the great priest who defended God's honor all the way back in Numbers 25, and, and he did so in such spectacular fashion that God entered into what we know now as the priestly covenant with the family of Phineas. God promised that a descendant of Phineas would be a priest in the days of Messiah's reign on earth in the future. And in fact, if you read 
uh, in the book of Ezekiel, you see that all the priests that will now occupy and serve in the temple are descended from Phineas, and they're called the sons of Zadok, who is also descended from Phineas. And then Phineas's father was Eleazar. Eleazar was the high priest during the conquest of Canaan. He was close to Joshua, the commander of Israel during the conquest. And most famously, Eleazar's father was Aaron, brother of Moses, the original high priest of Israel. This is significant. This is a genealogy worth putting down. And so Ezra's background is deemed important enough for, to be, for us to be given this key genealogy. Now, I don't know if he ever did this, but because Israelites are so keenly aware of genealogies and family connections, he might not have had to, but he could have if he wanted to. As he was teaching the law of Moses, he could have said, let's look at the next verse that Uncle Moses wrote. This is a serious heritage In Ezra's case, he needed to have a seriously deep heritage to assist him in his vital ministry to the Jews. Let me put it to you this way. Picture a local church that has gone on and continued meeting and being together for 60 years without a pastor. The first guy who walks in better know what he's doing. And so he does. Ezra has this heritage and he was prepared by God. And in reality, God does this with all of his shepherds. The Apostle Paul was prepared by being a Bible scholar long before his salvation. Timothy was prepared by being taught the scriptures at the feet of his mother and grandmother. A shepherd's life is used by God to uniquely prepare him for God's call in the particular nook of ministry that God has called him to. I've seen this in my own life and been able to look back at my own life and seen how what God did in my life has uniquely prepared me for where God has me at this point. This goes for the vocational pastor. This goes for the unpaid volunteer elder as well. And what a variety we have. Some men grew up in a Christian home, went to a Bible college, went to seminary, and essentially lived their whole lives in in the church. And they're they're a gift, and they have often a profound understanding of the church, a profound understanding of the Word of God. Other men were on a different path which God used to bring them to the gospel ministry. I have friends in the ministry now who were uh, engineers, businessmen, Navy SEALs, presidential advisors, chiropractors, physicians, construction workers, or architects. And God used all of that. My Navy SEAL friends, people don't mess with him. He just preaches the word and they leave him alone. Some men have a heritage of gospel ministry in their family and others were the first person in their whole family to be saved. I'm blessed and I'm the seventh generation on my dad's side to be in full-time ministry. Some men are sturdy and hardy and have a thick skin. Others are sensitive and tender and hurt easily. Some men are natural orators and others are more content just giving the facts of the word of God. The point is, is God crafts the background of a man God uniquely prepares his shepherds for their calling and for his role for them, including background, strength, weaknesses, experiences. I had a unique, spontaneous opportunity just a few days ago to spend a few minutes with a veteran lay elder. And I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass. This is a man who became an elder in an effective church at the same time I was 15 years old. And so I had questions for him and 
In fact, he served as an elder until just very recently. So here's the question I asked him. What was the pathway that God used to get you the eldership? What was your background? I knew this was my first point, and I thought, I got a great illustration sitting here in front of me. He listed four important factors, and he knew exactly what they were. He said, first of all, as a young man, being in a church with profound Bible preaching and just hearing the word of God over a long period of time at a high level helped prepare him. And the second factor, he said, other men took him under their wing and asked him this simple question, how can I help you in your walk with Christ? What a great discipleship model. There's no, there's no frills there. How can I help you in your walk with Christ? The third factor, he said, was the example of elders who were truly involved in people's lives. They were making disciples, not making decisions. They were being all in for God's people in the church and showing him what this looks like. And it, it, it created a hunger for him. And the fourth factor, which he said was most important, was his grandmother. His grandmother, who was in a nursing home from the time he could remember her, who continually told him that she was praying for him to come to faith in Christ. And 80 years later, he says that's still important to him. For Ezra, his background needed to be a lineage that the Jews in Israel would respond to. The first major building block of the shepherds that God supplies is a providential background. There's a second major building block. We'll call this one a proper devotion. A proper devotion. Ezra 7, verse 6, for a proper devotion. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. Now, these verses show us something about Ezra. He wasn't just some entitled priest's son who was handed a, a, a position to sit in an ivory tower because of his name. What we see here is that Ezra not only had a proper lineage that the Jews needed at this time, but he demonstrated the right devotion. And he was devoted in four key ways. The first way he was devoted was his training. His training, he was a scribe, he was a scribe, uh, trained in reading, writing, and a very specific skill, a very specific field of study. Ezra's skill was that he was an expert on Torah, the Pentateuch. And keeping in mind, by the time we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, nearly all of the Old Testament has been written. So he was a specialist, we might say, on the first five books of the Old Testament. He had taken the years and years necessary to be well-versed in the word of God, particularly the law of Moses. Over the years of the ministry that the Lord has given me, I really kind of lost track of the number of times that a young man will approach me with a, a keen desire to teach and preach, and we love that, or even to go all the way into the gospel ministry, and that's important. But one of the things I've noticed is that impatience can lead a man to believe that training in the word of God is unnecessary. And, the, and it's the same thing. The conversation, it's, I can almost parrot it because it's been the same so many times. Well, I just want to preach. Well, you need to be trained. Well, Spurgeon wasn't trained. You're not Spurgeon. We say the same thing every time. 
In reality, saying, I just want to preach is a selfish motivation. It doesn't think about the poor sheep that has to have to endure bad preaching for years until you get it figured out. Better to have other people endure bad preaching until they can come back to you. He is training. He took years. There's a second way that Ezra demonstrated the proper devotion, his calling. His calling. He went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, Ezra's calling and his trip to Jerusalem is viewed by the writer here as solely under the sovereign hand of God. Verse 6 and verse 9, he went where God called him. It was under the hand of the Lord. He went from what was at that time probably the most beautiful city on planet Earth, Babylon in Babylonia, to Jerusalem, the yet as incomplete city with a handful of Jews compared to the vastness of the once great nation. That's like saying, I, I'm going I'm to leave Paris and I'm going to go to Delano to minister. It is a step down. But listen, shepherds go where God has called them. They're present. This is their life. Uh, for, for some reason, I am kind of a magnet for other younger pastors with uh, questions. And one of the questions I get sometimes is, you know, my, uh, my, my parents and my in-laws uh, all live in this certain area. And, and I really like it. The weather's nice and house prices are good. And so we're, we're thinking about trying to find a ministry there. And I, I really reached a point in my life where I just say, would you please stop wasting my time? You go where God calls you. Not where it feels good and where it's convenient. You're a missionary to the world. You go wherever God takes you. And Well, what if it's not convenient? Then don't be a minister of the gospel because that's the most inconvenient thing you can do. Ezra, I'm sure, had a nice setup in Babylon, the, the city with the, with the most famous gardens in the history of the world. The shepherds go where God has called them. There's a third way Ezra demonstrated the proper devotion, his leadership. His leadership. You noticed in verse 7 that priests and more temple servants went with Ezra. Ezra 8 indicates there were several hundred that returned with Ezra. Ezra was making certain that the nation was forming their lives again around the worship of God, that they were well supplied. We saw that this began 60 years earlier, but God's people tended to degrade over time without leadership. And, and so Ezra was coming to revitalize the people spiritually. The people of God working together to live a life of worship, it's, it's a group effort. The church of Jesus Christ is a group effort. Shepherding is meant to yield the fruit of more and more laborers for the kingdom of God, right? We're, it's meant to supply the ministers of the gospel, and that's all of us. There's one more way that Ezra demonstrated the proper devotion, his urgency. He had an urgency, and how do we know this? The trip only took four months, according to this text, they went 900 miles in those four months. Now that means about 10 miles a day, not including Sabbaths. And I want you to picture this. This is hundreds of people dragging animals, all your furniture, everything you own. Going 10 miles a day is like running. That is quite a pace. And note again the reason for the speed in verse 9. The good hand of his God was on him. And so Ezra seems to be reflecting a sense of urgency to get to God's people who need a shepherd. Imagine being a church who hasn't had a shepherd for a year or for two or for four or for five. There should be a sense of urgency when the man is called that he wants to get there. He wants to be there. He wants to, to get the job going. So Ezra's devotion to God's people, it's very, very clear. as seen in his training and his calling, his leadership, his urgency. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that you have a right to expect some things of your shepherds. God's shepherds are in the church are, are to be all in. They're to have a fire under them for Christ's church and for God's glory. They're to have a passion, not for merely the theoretical idea of shepherding, of liking the position, but for actually doing the work of shepherding, doing the hard work. How the local church suffers when their shepherds are less than all in, less than inflamed with a yearning to see God's people shaped into Christ's likeness. I had lunch with a pastor a few years ago, and he drove from a completely different city just to kind of get out of town, and we sat down and talked together, and I asked him, how are, how, how's the ministry going? And he was kind of quiet and took a drink. I still can picture this in my mind, and, and, and he said, well, I have good men who are elders, and I have a good uh, associate pastor, and, but he said, every one of them make excuses for why they can't be all in for the ministry, and I feel like I'm all alone. And it was discouraging to him. It was discouraging to the church. How all shepherds ought to strive to be like Paul. Paul told the Galatian churches that he saw them like children, that he was birthing toward Christ's likeness. He calls them in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My prayer for any church is that may God save the church from yawning, half-hearted, inactive shepherds who are just going through the motions, just coasting. They're worse than nobody. God wants men who will be expended for God in this life. The first major building block of the shepherds God supplies, a providential background, the second, a proper devotion, and finally, one more building block. We'll call this one a prioritized mission. A prioritized mission. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. One more time. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 7, verse 10 has long been held up as the gold standard for the shepherds of God's people. This is quite phenomenal, actually. In just 13 Hebrew words, a lifetime of ministry to the Lord is delineated exactly here, exactly with the right priorities. And what we see here is that Ezra's priorities are exactly correct and and in order of importance. There's three top priorities of God's shepherd with a precursor, a prelude, a necessary uh, uh, coming beforehand. Uh, the, the precursor, the necessary prelude to those three top priorities are, is just the shepherd's heart. Where is his heart? Ezra is described as having set his heart on the ministry. Set his heart it means to be resolute, to be committed, to make this the top priority in life, to be firmly planted. Yes, God had gifted him, but Ezra made this his priority. And now with the resolute heart toward the ministry of shepherding God's people, we see his top three priorities in order of importance. And this is very important that these are in correct order. His first priority, priority, studying. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. What would this mean for Ezra? Well, primarily for him, it would mean devoting hours and hours every day to simply reading the law of Moses over and over again. He didn't have complex or sophisticated Bible study helps. He was skilled because he read. And by reading over and over again, 
he would become a walking Bible concordance, knowing how one section fits in with another. One of my heroes of the faith, who's been the pastor for four decades now, when he first became a pastor, he came as a young man to a church, a small church, where he became the preaching pastor. And the senior pastor at the time, who was not the preaching pastor, a little bit of a different setup, he sat down with the new associate and he said something to the effect of, son, you're a great preacher, and here's your week. You will spend 75% of your time reading the Bible and 25% of your time preparing sermons, and you will do nothing else. And for three years, the senior pastor made this guy read the Bible 75% of his week. And to this day, you can start any verse with that man and he can finish it. He knows the word of God. Paul exhorted Timothy, the minister of the gospel in 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling, it's a Greek word that means to cut something in a straight line. To cut something in a straight line. I'm a bit of a woodworker and I have kind of a lot of trouble cutting things in a straight line. If my hermeneutics were as bad as my carpentry, then you wouldn't be here. But this is important. So he says, as one of my seminary professors literally used to shout, cut it straight, get it right. The shepherd is to, as Paul says, do his best, give his all, give maximum effort. Ezra would have been a walking Bible concordance of the law of God, knowing how, the, how one section fits in with another. One of the common problems we see in churches today, and it's all over Social media quite often, even at a very high level in certain denominations, is men who fall into the trap of lacking the integrity to study the word of God for themselves. They're downloading sermons or flat out plagiarizing other men who have gotten their priorities upside down and made teaching or preaching the top priority. It's not the top priority. Teaching and preaching is not the top priority. It's third And so these men robbed themselves of the joy of having the word of God filter through their own souls and carve away their own sin. They they robbed themselves of the joy of discovery of these glorious moments when the word of God gives yet another of its endless treasures. The process of discovering these treasures week by week by week, that is the very highest priority of the shepherd of God's church, particularly those Paul identified as those who work hard at preaching and teaching in 1 Timothy 5, I, I, I feel so blessed that every single week of my life, when I have a Sunday coming up that I'm preaching, every single week I have the aha moments. It's when I'm studying the text and I'm digging and I'm, I'm looking and I'm making observations and I'm praying and I'm asking and I'm trying to figure out what's my angle, How's this, how, what, what is this text about? And every single week is just this explosive moment or, or series of moments that this is what it means. And it's just like, it's like the, the process starts like a roller coaster that is kind of going up like that. And then that moment when it goes over the top and we start racing down towards Sunday is glorious. I'll give you an example, kind of a behind the scenes look. Last Lord's Day evening, we were looking at the previous passage here in Ezra Nehemiah where Uh, The temple of God is finally completed and the Jews in Jerusalem had a celebration. And I want you to remember that we connected two concepts, reconciliation with joy. 
reconciliation with God and joy. Those two we put together. Reconciliation that for the first time in countless decades, Israel was back on track with a place to worship God, restarting their worship year. Israel was officially reconciled to God. And then we also saw the theme of joy. Remember that that was the important bookends of the passage. Uh, Ezra 6 verse 16 The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. That's one bookend. And the other one, verse 22 of chapter 6, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. And we saw the principle that reconciliation causes rejoicing. That being in the right, loving, tender justified relationship with God, with your sins forgiven, causes true joy. And I had the joy of studying that and making that observation and, and reading godly men who put those, those pieces together. The Bible is always consistent. And I remember the moment, I just thought to myself, if that's the case here, if reconciliation and joy go together, I'm going to bet five bucks that we find that in the New Testament. And we read and we pointed out that Paul wrote in Romans 5.11, We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what? Reconciliation. Those are glorious moments. What affirmation, what treasure, what spiritual gold, what diamonds of heavenly wealth. The reason for rejoicing is that I was the prodigal son and God the Father came running to me to embrace me, to receive me, to forgive me, to take me home and to celebrate our reconciliation. I say all that to say that you have the right to expect of your shepherds that they dig into the word of God for themselves and have the word of God dig into them. The second priority, first priority is studying. The second priority we would call living. Living. Ezra was specifically an expert in the law of God. By now, most, if not all, of the Psalms have been written. Much of what we have is the Old Testament already existed. Ezra and Nehemiah is among the last of the Old Testament books to be written. But Ezra was focused on the law. And you remember why? It was because of Israel's failure to keep covenant with God and to keep his law it led to their exile and he was determined to keep that from happening again. But notice where obedience started. It started with him for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. He was determined to practice the law of God to be an example. In other words, the application of the word of God didn't exclude him. He wasn't the exception. He wasn't in the ivory tower who didn't have to obey God. In his study, the word of God penetrated his own heart, transformed his own mind, worked out his own actions, worked out in his own actions. For me, when I saw Romans 5.11, that our rejoicing is because of reconciliation, what it did for me is caused me to stop everything I was doing, to close my books, and to once again just thank God and rejoice that I am reconciled to the God of the universe. One of the most powerful teaching tools the Apostle Paul had had was the ability to simply tell a church, watch me. Philippians 3.17, he said, brothers, join in imitating me. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
the shepherd of God's people, all of your elders, you have the right to expect this, that we are to be seeking Christ-likeness for ourselves, that we're on the pathway towards sanctification as well, that the intensive, massive study of the word of God should have a profound impact on his own soul and on the, the fruit of the spirit in his own life. This is ultimately why the ministries of many men fail, because they might be gifted at the teaching part, but the living part has eluded them. They can't set an example. On the other hand, even just one godly elder in the church, whether he's the teaching pastor or not, he can inspire many men just by the nature of his life. Now, it's interesting to me that the main thing you see me as your shepherd doing is preaching and teaching. But for Ezra, that was the third priority. Studying was the top priority. Living was the second priority. And then teaching. Because the best teaching is the natural outflow of studying and living, of inquiring of the word of God and having the word of God inquire of you. Sometimes I'm not sure whether who's studying whom. I study the word of God and then I realize, wait a minute, the word of God is studying me. The word of God is, is, is taking me apart. And I'm haunted by Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's like, stop cutting me so much. And so if on a Sunday morning you ever feel cut by the word, rest assured, I've got band-aids all over me too. The necessary higher priorities to teaching the word of God, studying and living. There's an old saying in business, and it's printed on many posters throughout the years. There are lots of variations of this saying, but it goes something like this, and you often see this in kind of mom-and-pop small businesses. The saying goes something like this. You can have this service done, and it can be good, fast, or cheap, but you can only pick two of those. In other words, if the service of the product is good and fast, then it won't be cheap. If it's good and cheap, it's not going to be fast. And if it's fast and cheap, it's not going to be good. Very similarly to that, if a man doesn't have these priorities straight, or worse, if his church doesn't have these priorities straight, then the first thing to be sacrificed will be study. That will be the first thing to go because there's too many meetings to go to, too many counseling sessions, too many things, other things to do, too many lunches, too many this and that. And study goes out the window. And that's when you find yourself suddenly blinking and in the trap of 6 p.m. on a Saturday night, opening your Bible and going, what am I going to say tomorrow? You're done if that's where you are. But it's study that leads to living as godly life as possible. And now the example is compromised because you're not studying and certainly if the study is compromised, then the teaching will be ineffective or at least less effective. And let me just say straight up to anyone who will listen, who has any say in this matter in any church. If you want to see God move in new ways in your ministry in the local church, then have the discipline to allow the teaching shepherds to make these three priorities pretty much the entirety of their ministry and then watch God work because you're doing things his way. Now, at this point, you might be saying, this really doesn't apply to me. But in actuality, this exact same pattern fits every Christian life. Did you know that? Because third priority, every believer is a teacher to someone, right? Mothers are to teach their children, Proverbs 1.8. Fathers are to teach their children, Ephesians 6.4. Older believers are to teach younger believers, Hebrews 5.12. Older women are to teach younger women, Titus 2.4. And older men are to teach younger men, 2 Timothy 2.2. And what gives value and depth to what you teach? The other two priorities, your knowledge of the word and the example of your life. 
the most powerful teaching tool you have. Open the Bible and here's how I live it out. That's powerful. Studying, living, and teaching. So these are the major building blocks of the shepherds that God supplies. A a providential background, a proper devotion, a prioritized mission. Now in as many of these messages as we can, we try to connect this forward. First to our Christ-likeness, second to the cross, and third to the coming kingdom. Because remember, Ezra Nehemiah points us, the failure of Ezra Nehemiah, ultimately the failure of bringing in the kingdom, points us forward farther to the kingdom. And so I'd like to address those three areas of application how does this description of a godly man help you grow in Christ-likeness? How, how does it help you? One of the clearest indicators of the spiritual health and maturity of a believer is the internal heart attitude he has toward his shepherds, toward all the elders of the church. I've never really been hesitant to say this, to be open about this, because some might say, well, that's self-serving. I, I think it's you-serving, because there's no such thing as a happy church member who can't stand his leadership. That doesn't exist. And so it's good for you. What is that attitude to be? It's not an attitude of fawning or pseudo-worship. I think it's cute. It's happened a few times when recently saved Catholics accidentally call me father because they're just in the habit of it. And I say, don't do that ever again as long as we live. Paul rejected this sort of fawning outright to the Corinthian church, some of whom proudly said, well, I follow Paul. Remember how Paul argued against this in 1 Corinthians 1.13? He said, was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He didn't save anybody. But neither is the attitude to be a sneering attitude of, of complaint and contempt and disdain. Paul experienced this also from the church of Corinth and from the churches of Galatia. They were not living out Hebrews 13.7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. They were not living out Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So what's the balance? Well, the balance is found in, in a very simple passage. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. First, first Thessalonians five twelve. we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And and Paul here gives three basic concepts for being in a right relationship with shepherds. To respect them, first of all, it's actually a word that means to know them. To know the shepherds. Why, Why does that go with respect? Well, knowing the shepherds leads to respect because you don't dehumanize the shepherds. I'm amazed at how often a a wayward church can treat their shepherds as if they're not even human beings. The second thing the church is to do is esteem them very highly in love. It simply means to choose to regard someone with love. And it's a, it's a Greek word for love that goes beyond attitude and involves actions, that you do things that demonstrate love. And the third thing they were to do is to be at peace among yourselves. Now, why would you say, well, why is that for the shepherds? Because there's nothing like internal conflict in the church to suck the air out of the ministry of the shepherds. It just takes the joy out of everything. We all get that people need assistance with dealing with hurt feelings or especially when one sins against another. But the bigger concern for church members ought to be for the church as a whole, for the health of the whole body. Anything you do as a church member can be filtered through one simple question. Am I contributing to the health of the church or am I hindering the health of the church? 
And you contribute to the health of the church by remembering the simple admonition of Paul to the Philippians when he said in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And by remembering Paul's plea to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. One of the most joyful things I can hear as a shepherd is when somebody comes up to me and says, uh, just so you know, I was in a terrible conflict with another church member, but we decided not to bug you and we worked it out. Praise God. What is that? That is be at peace among yourselves. Well, how does this description of a man of God take us on the road to the cross of Christ? What does this have to do with the cross? I think on Timothy, the minister of the gospel sent by Paul to clean up the church at Ephesus. And if you were to guess what Paul's guidance to him would be as a shepherd, and if you could pick, I don't know, three parts of this guidance, what do you think these three might be? Well, here's what they were. Number one, studying. We've already referenced Paul's command to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 to cut it straight. Example, we've already referenced Paul's admonition to Timothy for anyone concerned about his youthfulness. He said, don't worry about that. Just set an example for them. Be a man of God they can follow. And then teaching. Paul gives what is really the climactic note of all of his correspondence with Timothy when he charges Timothy in no uncertain terms in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What does that have to do with the cross? The study, the living, and the teaching then goes forward. Paul goes on to tell Timothy that one of the aspects of his preaching and teaching, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. What does that mean? It means preach the cross, preach Christ, go to Christ, get to the atonement, get to regeneration, get to justification, get to repentance. And so the faithful shepherd ultimately, like Ezra, takes Ezra didn't take them to the cross, but he took them to repentance. He took them to the God who would provide the cross in the future. What about the road to Christ's coming kingdom? How does this description of the man of God take us even further? I want to end on another text. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 54, and then we'll be done for the evening. Isaiah 54. God has supplied shepherds very faithfully to all his people, and I suppose that in the coming kingdom, I, I know for me, I can hardly wait to hear from Paul. I can hardly wait to hear from Peter and from John to meet Jeremiah and Isaiah for any of those men whose books I've preached, I, I with a little bit of trembling, go asking them, you know, how'd it go there in chapter 2? Well, Steve, you kind of missed the point. Okay, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to hearing Paul's thoughts on Romans and on Galatians. I'm pretty certain the Lord will no longer require my preaching services. I, I keep my woodworking up just in case, but he's not going to require me to preach. But who would you want most to hear preaching and teaching in the coming kingdom of Christ. Who do you want to hear? Isaiah 54 is meant to give hope to the exiled Jews long before the exile even happened. It's meant to give hope that God will restore the kingdom and restore them to their land. 
Isaiah 54, 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth in the singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Not only will their numbers be vast, Israel will be the leading nation on earth. Is, verses 4 through 8, never again will Israel need to be ashamed. And in fact, God swears that in the coming kingdom, Israel will never again need to fear shame or rejection or the judgment of God. Verse 9, for this is, as, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Verses 11 and 12 indicates the tremendous wealth and prosperity in the coming kingdom. But again, I ask you the question, who do you most want to hear preaching and teaching in the coming kingdom of Christ? Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount and you've ever pictured the green grass, because we know from the Gospel of Mark that it it happened during the spring and they're, they're there during this time. And if you ever wished you could just have sat on that hillside and wonder what it's like to have heard Jesus teach and to look around and see the crowds that are just holding on to every word and to know that every word that comes out of his mouth is perfectly from his Father above. If you've ever longed for that, all I have to tell you is just wait because your shepherd in the coming kingdom won't be Ezra. It won't be Paul. It won't be Peter. It won't be John. And it sure won't be Steve Swartz. It'll be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It'll be the king. And what truths will he explain? What mysteries will he reveal? And the Jew reading Isaiah 54, if they wonder how to be in that kingdom, the text is surrounded by the how to be in that kingdom. Isaiah 53 is the prophetic account of the atoning death of Christ. And Isaiah 55 that we read this morning is the invitation to salvation by Christ himself. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. It boggles my mind that going all the way back to Enoch, the first that we know of, God has provided preachers for his people all the way through history, all the way down until Christ returns. God continues to provide shepherds. None of us are indispensable. I know that. But he'll continue to do so until that day when the great pastor, known as the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, appears. That will be a great day. But in the meantime, we're thankful for our shepherds. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for Ezra and the example he is. Ezra 7 verse 10 has been the inspiration for countless thousands of men of God. It challenges me. I know it challenges all of our elders, Lord, to have those right priorities of studying and living and teaching. Lord God, I pray that Grace Bible Church would always be characterized as having faithful shepherds. Always be characterized as a church that loves the word of God, that rightly exalts the scriptures as the only knowledge of God that we have. Lord, I pray for all in our midst here that are perhaps pushed in their conscience a bit when we talk about living the word of God. 
that some here perhaps, Lord, might be struggling with hypocrisy in their own lives, that they do come to church and yet their Mondays are vastly different. And so, Lord, I pray that as our shepherds endeavor to set an example, that that example would trickle down through the membership, that we would live lives of faith seven days a week, and that we would not be caught out in our own hypocrisy. And I pray for all of us, Lord, every person in this church at one level or another to be students of the word of God, to love the law of God, to love the Bible, and to let that love live out in their lives and therefore then be able to impart that knowledge and that wisdom and that maturity to others as teachers and mentors. We pray you would continue to raise up ministers of the gospel through this church, both vocational and volunteer and that you would raise up many mentors and and those to simply take alongside one or two at a time. We pray that in the days to come, as this church stands before heaven's court, that we would be known as the church that made disciples, that taught the word and listened to the shepherds that God provides. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.